hello everybody and welcome back to the regrettably zoomers podcast we apologize for the one day delay but yesterday was halloween we tried to enjoy ourselves a little bit uh today we have a good episode uh we'll cover a lot of ground from the supreme court to big tech and antitrust laws and then finally some last minute uh predictions and wishes for the election uh as a note we're recording this on november 1st so two days out from election day uh before we get into that however we have a very special guest joining us uh, in Lottie and Tony's absence today. Our friend Sam. Sam's a student in uh, international relations at Carnegie Mellon and also works with the organization Gen Z GOP. Uh, so, Sam, tell me a little bit about Gen Z GOP's mission statement and what exactly you do with them. Yeah, so Gen Z GOP is a new organization, and um, their goal right now, at least our goal, is to um, make sure that the Republican Party the current Republican Party is paying attention to issues that Gen Z cares about. Those are issues like climate change, ish, sensible issues on gun legislation, right? These are issues that we feel the Republican Party has long time ignored. And we see that, for example, a lot of, a lot of um, young people actually would vote conservative, but they feel like um, so many young people are voting for Democrats that you know they can feel ostracized and they don't really know where they fit in. So we want to make sure that the party is paying attention to issues that we all know matter and like as a latin american policy advisor for gen z gop i'm responsible for sort of looking into our foreign policy with latin america mm-hmm. what issues gen z gop should care about in in that region and how we can connect with young voters so um, there's going to be a lot more coming from gen z gop especially with the election happening soon mm-hmm. and um, just like stay tuned for that i'm very excited love it all right. Uh, for our first segment today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Supreme Court, a um, little bit of history, a little bit of precedent in there. And, uh, and we'll also be talking about the political polarization of it and uh, when exactly and how exactly it became politicized and the effects that that had. So obviously, the uh, Supreme Court is a big part of the judicial branch that is enshrined by the uh, third article, I believe, of the Constitution. And it's, you know, it was only meant to be a check on the legislature and the executive to overturn legislation on the grounds of whether or not it was constitutional. Uh, and there have always been different um, political and judicial philosophies on the court. Um, and they tend to be uh, connected, whether that's correlation or causation, uh, you can be the judge. Um, and it's no shock to suggest that uh, liberals and conservatives find themselves on different sides of the conversation of uh, judicial philosophy concerning uh, originalism versus whatever you want to call it, uh, judicial progressivism. Um, but there definitely used to be less of a second legislature uh, expectation placed on the court by the people, particularly uh, those on the left. So if, if you had something on that, Sam, if you want to expand on that. So I would say that, right, your, big, your point at the beginning, right, that this is sort of a new thing, right? From when we look at the 1930s, or at least the beginning of the, of the country, people were a lot more concerned about making sure that the judicial court was uh, much more limited in terms of their judicial power. Um, Only about when there were people expected justices to be more partisan. Um, It it was something that, you know, you'd have a politician be an associate justice, right? It wouldn't just be someone that came up through federal or circuit courts. Um, This sort of like partisanship, I think it's, I mean, you look at the last person that was a sitting politician, right? It was Arthur Goldberg in 1962. And now we we see the Supreme Court passing laws like or ruling on laws concerning election, right? Bush v. Al Gore. 
you can't expect the Supreme Court to not be this politicized when you have them ruling on issues that some of our founding fathers would say is a little bit of an overreach. Yeah, that, that definitely plays into a part of it. I think the more you expand the power of something um, in the political realm, the more you know politicized it's going to be. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I think a big reason why a lot of people are talking about the Supreme Court right now is the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and uh, the supposed, you know, violation of uh, institutional norms. Now, I will say, you know, and then you can give your opinion. I will say that it was terrible optics for Mitch McConnell to not give Merrick Absolutely. Garland a hearing yeah. at all. It is a terrible idea to give to not give Garland a hearing. Uh, it, I mean, realistically, it would not made it. It would not have made a difference. But even still, it was. It, Didn't even need to not give him a hearing. It wouldn't have gone through regardless. This so. is it's a terrible idea from someone who. Like I, I don't really like, but is genuinely pretty, uh, pretty cunning at politics. I don't know where he was coming from on that. That being said, um, you know, in, in 20, 2015, 2016, Merrick Garland was not the first example of some shady stuff being pulled to prevent um, someone that, that the party in charge disagreed with from entering. There are a couple of examples here. So for example, in the 80s, I believe Reagan nominated Robert Bork, um, and Bork suggested that he would interpret the law and the constitution as it stood, you know, uh, originalism, um, as it stood and was written in a meme, um, but was slandered pretty unfairly as a racist, misogynist, homophobe, all that sort of stuff. Um, maybe that, maybe the homophobe might be accurate. It was the eighties, like, you know, everyone, everyone opposed gay marriage, but, uh, <laughs> um, there, there were a lot of, there, there were a lot of claims made that a lot of people still think are true that have since been discredited because there wasn't much basis for them at the time. For example, Ted Kennedy gave a lengthy set of remarks on the Senate floor about how Robert Bork was, wished to, quote, force women into back alley abortions and force blacks into sitting at segregated lunch counters, unquote, and referred to Bork as, quote, the muck of Watergate. Um, as is largely admitted today, Bork was entirely correct when he said that not a word of that was true. Uh, in many ways, the attacks on Bork kind of reflects the attacks um, that we've seen on, on Amy Coney Barrett in the last few weeks about her being some fanatic or some extremist when all she's really talked about is just, uh, it's just kind of an, an originalist philosophy. You can disagree with that, but uh, the, 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 the slanderous lies are, might be a little bit much. Uh, ads were run, you know, to point, to, to paint Borka as an extremist. Um, and there are a lot of uh, overt lies even today um, not to give not not to give people's uh, social media influence too much credibility or too much uh, too much power. But I've seen a lot of things going around. Tell me if you've seen this, but um, there's a quote from I believe his name is Michael Harriet. He's a writer at the at the Root. Yeah. And and people are quoting him saying that uh, Amy Coney Barrett once ruled that a man did not uh, have a right to oxygen when he was choked out by the cops. And I looked this up. I thoroughly searched. There is like nothing there. Like there's nothing to find, um, and the only source is just the quote that the dude said. Like, and so I, I mean, it's, it it blows my mind because there's just there's no. It's not even true. It's just like some dude made something up and then it spread. Um, and similar to how a lot of people uh, attacked Bork uh, back in the '80s, that he supposedly opposed uh, the Civil Rights Act with no real evidence. And uh, a lot of investigations that were done afterwards found that he was that he ruled very liberal on a lot of social issues uh, at the time. Um, 
in the 90s, they attempted to sync Clarence Thomas with uh, pretty uh, uh, unbased uh, testimony and allegations from Anita Hill, um, in which a days-long FBI investigation found nothing to support the claims. Um, and Thomas referred to it quite famously as, um, quote, a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks uh, who in any way deigned to think for themselves, is what he called it. Um, I saw a video of, um, it was of the hearing, and I remember it was actually Senator Biden at the time asking um, uh, Justice Thomas about something related to legal or moral precedent or a right that had to end. <laughs> It was an interview with Justice Thomas, and he was just like, yeah, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> thought it was just funny how they just try to make him almost say something he had no idea what he was talking about for. Right. Um, and even the last few decades, Democrats have, have filibustered judges who just simply won't do their political building, uh, bidding. Um, so uh, Miguel Estrada was appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in 2001 and received a unanimous, well-qualified rating from the American Bar Association. Um, Democrats filibustered the hearings and similar to what we've been talking about, slandered Estrada as an extremist, when he's, he's hardly at all. Um, and according to files obtained from, uh, from Dick Durbin at the time, who I believe was the Senate whip, whatever the Senate majority whip, um, files, um, from his staffers said that they had a vested interest in the first Latino justice being left-wing as they had uh, already lost the battle on the force and the first female justice and the first uh, and the first black justice. Um, or, well, I guess that wouldn't be true because I guess Thurgood Marshall was, uh, was the first, but, um, and then Clarence Thomas was after that. But regardless, um, the filibuster was a couple of firsts. The Estrada filibuster was different in multiple ways. His was the first filibuster ever to be successfully used against a judicial nominee who had clear support of the majority in the Senate. Uh, Estrada's was the first filibuster of any court of appeals nominee. It was also the first filibuster that prevented a judicial nominee from joining a court. So if you wanna talk about I mean, using some stuff to violate some norms, this did not begin in 2015, 2016. Um, the Democrats, namely Harry Reid, later killed the judicial filibuster in 2013 because he was upset that the tool that he created was being used uh, against him. Um, and even after Merrick Garland in 2017 or 18, um, the Dems brought, uh, brought forth Christine Blasey Ford um, with a story that lacked any real, um, that lacked any real story or any real substance to be investigated. That's not my place to say if it's real or not. It's just to say that there's there's nothing to go off of and asking for an investigation into it is is unreasonable when no date place time is is given um so no info was provided for an investigation but people like kamala harris still proceeded to accuse brett Gavin, brett kavanaugh of essentially being a gang rapist um so there there have, there have long been <laughs> um violations of yeah. yeah 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 there's a long history here and it's not just it's not just mitch mcconnell and merrick garland um, and again, all this isn't to say that McConnell and other Senate Republicans are being highly hypocritical and partisan when they appoint Amy Coney Barrett after even after denying Garland a hearing in the first place. They certainly are. Um, what's more important to understand is that you shouldn't put up with the sort of like victimization um, that a lot of people on the left are trying to push, uh, embracing the radical concepts of court packing because the violation of norms um, 
was not started by Republicans. And so, you know, responses, ra radical responses should not be treated as justified responses because violation of norms um, at best holds no political blame and uh, at worst for them uh, holds a blame for the Democrats. Uh, keep in mind uh, this idea being pushed of sort of, you know, don't get mad at us. This is all justified response. We'll be talked about in a little bit of a later segment as well. Um, that, you know, any and all kind of radical decisions and moves are justified so long as they contradict uh, the Republicans. Yeah, I was just saying, so um, some people are saying, you know, obviously the optics of this don't look good, right? You just talked about this. Um, I mean, the other claim some people are saying is that Amy Connie Barrett isn't even the most qualified justice to be nominated for the Supreme Court. She's got uh, critics saying, She's only got three years of experience on a court, um, but she was a law professor at one of her country's most prestigious universities for over a decade and a half now. So I think she's qualified, but I think that, you know, another a good point to bring up is just how extremely extremist some people are taking Amy Connie Barrett to be. I, you know, I saw, I was scrolling classic through my Instagram stories and I'm just seeing stories, you know, infographics about Amy Connie Barrett says that people who have abortions should be killed. Like what kind of, no, she doesn't think that. You're Literally. Just... And I look it up and I'm like, and because I'm like, well, does she? Oh, wait, she doesn't. This is just like made up. Like it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And I feel like this is an extremely, I feel like this is something not even reserved for Barrett, but it's a point that the left sometimes will portray someone has, will have, and Amy, I don't think Amy Connie Barrett is like uh, anywhere near like being a moderate conservative, but they'll use moderate conservative points and paint them to be completely egregious. I mean, Trump could go and say that he wants to uh, limit abortions and they'll be completely outraged. A conservative wanting to limit abortions, that's pretty like standard, you know? It's pretty standard, yeah. But this is, I mean, well, we will get into this, uh, I think, when we talk a little bit about the election. Um, so I don't want to, you know, spill spill too much right now. But definitely, it seems like a push to just kind of alienate uh, a lot of people or, or kind of shrink the Overton window in into the left side. And uh, and the Instagram infographics is a whole nother episode on its own, a whole nother, a whole nother headache of its own. <laughs> All right, so for this next segment, we're gonna talk about section 230, which has been coming into the limelight with the recent Google lawsuit that the DOJ filed a couple of days ago. Um, so what section 230 is, is it's a section, it's section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of um, 1996. And what, it, what the crux of the section is, is that it says that social media companies or and technology companies are not or not even just technology companies, companies all, are not- All media companies, all sort of anything, yeah. Mm -hmm. Are not liable for what their users or third-party content does, um, whether or not it harms free speech, whether or not it's um, it's liable or defamatory it's or discriminatory, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt or they should not be liable for their content. And it's gotten into a, a lot of, um, a lot of arguments between Republicans and Democrats who argue that it lets it lets um, it lets these companies essentially have free reign over what gets diffused. 
So one Biden quote is that it should be completely revoked because it is not merely an internet company. It is propagating falsehoods they know to be false. And when we look at what Republicans are arguing for with Section 230, they claim that Section 230 allows companies like Twitter to simply push claims that are more liberal and biased than conservative claims. And I think this is wrong because not Section 230 doesn't just apply to Twitter. It doesn't just apply to Facebook or Google. It applies to the American conservative. It applies to the Washington Examiner. It applies to the National Review. It applies to all kinds of newspapers, social media companies across the range of, of uh, viewpoints. Um, mm. It's not just, so it's really a problem where both Democrats and Republicans are getting things wrong about them. Mm. And they believe that content moderation is a lot easier than, than it really is. I mean, we know that companies like Facebook have hundreds of people just working to make sure that their content or the website is, is free and not, doesn't violate the rules, right? You can work with AI, you can do machine learning, but you really, you need people as a backup. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it, I think Section 230 allows for different viewpoints, and it's something that we need to keep if we don't want to uh, bog down these companies with lawsuits um, and uh, customers that are just, you know, prone to um, risking free speech. Yeah, so I'm I'm definitely a big defender of uh, of Section 230, um, and you're very right that people on both the right and the left very much misunderstand it. Um, perhaps intentionally for some of them. But uh, I, I think that the key part of Section 230 that people talk about the most, um, forgive me, uh, nerds out there, if I get like the code reading wrong, but it's uh, the Section 230, like C2A reads as follows, uh, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or, availab or availability of material that the provider or user uh, considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or this is the kicker, otherwise objectionable, uh, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Like 90% of that is all well and good. The problem I think a lot of people should be focusing on is the catch-all of otherwise objectionable that allows, um, that allows unreasonable and not good faith uh, attempts to take down stuff, to, to take down things. Um, so I think it's less of a matter of, you know, abolishing uh, the, you know, Section 230 or other parts of the Communications Decency Act, um, but definitely focusing on very strict defined language and not putting catch-alls that can be abused in, in ways that we've seen them abused um, for a long time and even in the last couple of months or, or you know, last couple of, uh, of weeks even. Um, so to be clear, Section 230 is technically telecommunications law. It's not antitrust law. Um, it's under uh, the Senate Commerce Committee, not the Judiciary or the antitrust uh, subcommittee. Um, so like I said, I'm, I'm very much a defender of Section 230. For example, I saw I saw a good, uh, a good argument for it. It was so I think most people are familiar with like the Jeffrey Tubin story in the New York and uh, the New Yorker yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it was saying, uh, if you believe Jeffrey Tubin should be at fault for, um, exposing himself on a meeting rather than zoom for, for, you know, for holding the meeting, then you value section 230. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the arguments from the right about, um, about this bill or, you know, about this section, 
um, are largely concerning, you know, political censorship. And I think we all should be concerned about politically biased uh, censorship of uh, exclusively, you know, left-wing tech companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, but we should be a lot more concerned with the proposition of giving government the authority to dictate what speech is acceptable and, and what is not. Um, Right-wing attempts to hit big tech are generally pretty misguided and they're pretty dangerous um, for for what they're looking for. Uh, as well, they could conceivably do something to, to you know, to curb the quote unquote uh, silencing of conservative voices. Uh, a Democrat controlled government could just as easily turn that on its head with the same power. Uh, you know, for example, when you have Ed Markey saying uh, a few days ago, um, quote, anti-conservative bias is not an issue. There's not an issue with uh, removing conservative content. In fact, these companies and platforms are not removing enough. This is an example of someone that like, if you give them the reins of power on this stuff, it's gonna be very, it's gonna be a lot worse than it is now. Um, in short, it's a wiser decision to rewrite and reform Section 230 to be more specific in its language than it is to allow a government takeover and regulation of tech companies and social media generally. I think, yeah. is, that, is that fair? A bedrock of conservative principles is that we don't interfere with what these companies are doing. We'll let them, um, we let innovation, we'll let the consumers be the, be the ones responsible for promoting or not using a platform as much, right? And by instilling these regulations that are limiting, you know, limiting innovation, limiting competition, we're telling people that we don't care about what the consumers, how the consumers feel about this product, but we just wanna limit it because it's hurting our political goals, it's hurting the way we're perceived. And that's not how we should be looking at these at these companies. Right. The big issue is that these companies are allowed to become a lot more powerful than we have ever thought they could be. I mean, I'm reminded of, you know, a few months ago when there was a hearing about Google working with China and, and, uh, and helping them um, defensively. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's up to our government to be telling these companies, oh, you shouldn't work with that country. Oh, you should be moderating content this way. You, should, you shouldn't be moderating content this other way. Um, we should be letting the consumers decide. And when you look at things like the Google lawsuit, the main argument that the DOJ is trying to prove is that consumers have been harmed as a result of Google's quote unquote monopoly. And right. I don't think the consumers are harmed. I think the consumers benefit from, um, especially Twitter being put in the spotlight like this. It makes them, it makes them question what Twitter is doing, and that's exactly what what we need to do. We need to put consumers in in um, has the responsible party for deciding how these firms operate. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. Um, yeah, it, it is, it is a, it is a frightening future for. Uh, for big tech and social media, if any one party completely takes control, um, or you know, if if government in general takes control, because it'll flip flop. Um, it it I think it's it's very clear. I saw in the hearings um, that were just a few days ago, right, um, about uh, where they interviewed Zuckerberg and Dorsey, and I remember Cruz was grilling uh, Dorsey on what's <laughs> that? His beard. His but... beard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So Ted Cruz was, uh, was asking Gandalf some questions and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he was, uh, he was saying like, do you, do you think that Twitter and Facebook have any influence on like on elections or anything? And Dorsey just snaps me. Of course not. Like, no, which I like, I think is objectively like absurd on its face. Um, that they don't have some sort of societal or political power. That is not a case for government regulation. Um, in, in fact, it's it's a case for the opposite because, you know, if people uh, like Ed Markey get their way, um, social media will only be more of a uh, completely um, left wing curated uh, plat set of platforms. Um, and while I, I do struggle to know exactly, you know, what there is to be done about the problem of, in a few you know a few weeks ago, New York Post comes out with a story. Um, that is pretty substantiated um you know it, it might might be wrong in in some parts but has not been denied and i would assume is largely true and and twitter bans the link facebook bans the link bans accounts that tweet it or or share it suppresses the story um post what's that sorry they blocked the new york post account right right yeah exactly um so i you know i government is always my last resort option um but uh <laughs> as i think it should be for most people but uh i that that is a different conversation but I, I think i think it's it's an emotional and poorly thought out response to say oh we just need to you know get rid of section 230 as a as a result i think it's uh i think it's ill-informed and um comes from a place where there's not a lot of consideration for the uh, implications of getting rid of some of these laws yeah I mean, we see that not only are these laws good for, I think personally are good for consumers, but they're also good for businesses, right? For example, digital ad prices are down since 40% in 2010. That's when Google acquired, or a little bit before Google acquired YouTube. Um, quality is much better. Output in terms of ads, in terms of where the ads are being targeted, in terms of who's getting the attention from these consumers is upright i can create an ad and blast that pretty much anywhere i want it's not just limited to um, small businesses or uh, bigger businesses uh, and I, I feel like a lot of what at least leadership is getting wrong is that it's not the, this kind of quality is is good because it lets businesses be the ones that are um, responsible for getting the consumer's attention Right. If I, as a consumer, decide that I don't want to, I want to visit, I want to go on Walmart to look for something instead of Amazon, I'm hurting the ad, the ads that are on Amazon, but I'm benefiting the ads that are on Walmart. So it's sort of a game to see who wants my attention the most. And that free um, market, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, let these businesses be the ones to compete and you know, get my attention. I think that's a positive for everyone. So, great. All right. Okay. Uh, for our final uh, segment here, we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, imminent election. Um, our predictions, our wishes, what we think the reactions and the uh, outcome of uh, of each uh, reality <laughs> would be. Uh, you know, a Trump presidency, a Biden presidency. Um, why we you know why, why we uh want whatever to happen why we think whatever will happen 
and uh, and other stuff. So I guess we might as well just jump into uh, predictions first. So have you have you developed a, a prediction, Sam? Um, I think a prediction I have is that I think Biden will take it. I think that we'll keep the Senate, however, but I uh, I think the House will just stay Democrat. Um, okay. Right now, I think most polls have it has more of, as of a Senate has of a Democrat win for the Senate. Um, I think it's about like high 50s or like somewhere in the 60s, but I think it's going to be a lot closer than that. Uh, there are a couple elections I think are going to be really tight. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think, so my, my predictions, I think the House will stay blue, the Senate will stay red, um, although maybe a seat is lost, but I think the Senate will stay red. Um, and I think that Trump will win. Uh, a, a very narrow electoral victory. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of kind of toss up in the battleground states. Um, I think Pennsylvania in the last, you know, in the last minutes will swing in a red direction. Um, I you know, think some, so. Yeah. yeah. Some, you know, some Biden comments about, uh, you know, the oil industry and fracking. Uh, and then obviously, uh, a lot of the riots and stuff going on in, in Philadelphia. Um, I, I, I certainly hope Pennsylvania will, will swing red at the end. I think uh, Florida is, is beginning to swing red as we get closer to election day. Um, so I think Trump will um, uh, e eke out some wins in Georgia, Florida, hopefully Arizona, Pennsylvania. And from what I know on the ground, from on the ground sources, I believe North Carolina, and he, uh, and with that, I think he could walk away with a narrow electoral win, um, you know, because there's a, there's a never in a million chance that he wins the popular vote, but I think there is certainly a chance that he uh, wins the electoral college. Um, and even with the popular vote, I think it's, I think it's definitely going to be close. I think it's going to be, well, I don't think it's going to be obviously anywhere near 2016, but I think that yeah. Trump has a closer, more narrow chance than in 2016 of winning the popular vote, mm -hmm. um, just a little bit more. Hey. Uh, you think? Big? Really? I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, if you look at the national polling for 2016, it wasn't that far off. And the national polling in this year has Biden up like eight, nine, 10. Um, so I think Biden will solidly win the popular vote. Um, but not, not that that, uh, matters, nor really should it, I guess the electoral college is a different conversation, but I, I don't think, um, you know, I shout out to electoral college, uh, as for, as for what we want and why, uh, I'll, I'll send that over to you. Um, I think I would like to see, I would really like to see us keeping the Senate. Um, I think if we have, I think if Biden ends up winning, I would rather have a Senate that's red, and then and um and a White House that's blue rather than have a White House that's red and a blue Senate. Um, I, yeah, I definitely like, agree. If the, if those are the options, then I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I would definitely like us to keep the Senate. I would also like to see Republicans doing more work in terms of state legislatures. Mm. Um, I know that the Republicans are for some reason. Um, more concerned right now with states that are going to be decidedly red. I could, I mean, we had Kamala being in Texas a few days ago or yesterday, right? I think we should definitely be doing more to just 
push not Texas because Texas isn't technically like a swing state, but I think they should be looking at more states that are prone to swinging blue, especially Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of state legislators, I think that that's something the Republican Party should also be paying attention to. Right. Uh, something else that I'd like to see is um, um, I'd, I'd like to see more work after this election, uh, regardless of who wins, with Republicans. Republicans have to stop trying to suppress votes in states like Texas and just make it clear that they can win and have to do the work regardless. Definitely needs to be a lot more confidence there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wait, sorry, what? There needs to be more confidence there from, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you should show that you don't need to suppress the vote at all to vote. You shouldn't have to have one county box, one drop off box in a county of 4.3 million to show that you need, you want to win. Right. right. So, right. Right. I'm hoping um, that changes at least with this election. Yeah. I think in a, in a perfect world, um, well, not that we are in one, but uh, the, the ideal outcome here, not that I, and, and again, this is different from my prediction. I think my my preferred choice is a red house, a red Senate and a Biden presidency, because I think that the Biden presidency won't be able to really do that much. So it's not as uh, frightening to me. And it would probably make a lot of people just like chill out and take a deep breath for like a second. Um, but if, if there's not a red house and a red cent, then I would not be uh, nearly as comfortable with it. Um, so assuming there's not a red house and red cent, I am uh, very reluctantly like go Trump, but like not, you know, <laughs> not, not really, but I, you know, really, you know, they, they forced my hand here. Um, they, man, um, kind of predictions. Yeah, predictions as a, as a result of the election. Um, I think if Trump wins, there's going to be, there's going to be more like violence in the streets that, yeah. uh, is going to get kind of egged on by, um, yeah, I think by, I don't you know. think there'll be any violence if Biden wins. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. Conservatives yeah. can go right in, in the streets, but I think if Trump wins, that will definitely be in Philly in Chicago, mm -hmm. LA. I mean, right. Yeah. It's... So I think if, if Trump wins, it'll be, you know, violence and riots, there'll be huge, there will be even more, you know, political and social turmoil. Uh, I blame yeah. the conservatives for some reason because <laughs> it's just somehow that's the right thing. How it works, you know. Um, there'll be a massive call also by kind of coastal leftists to make elections um, purely based on popular vote rather than the Electoral College, yeah. which uh, is part of the reason why I really need a Red House and Senate to make sure stuff like that doesn't go through. Um, uh, if Biden does win the kind of media and Democratic Party complex, uh, you know, but I repeat myself when I say media and Democratic Party, um, <laughs> uh, I think there'll be, you know, reports, oh, you know, that everything, everything is just better instantly, you know, COVID is solved because <laughs> Biden's here. Um, uh, no violence, most likely. I don't think COVID will get them much better. I think the country will unfortunately move in, um, hopefully, hopefully not permanently, but we'll probably move in a left, uh, left moving direction. Um, the economy will suffer severely if he gets his way on some of his policies. Lockdowns will continue again if he gets his way. And, uh, and I so swear we accepted that lockdowns are not what we thought they were like months ago. I don't know. 
one of, one of my favorite uh, Twitter accounts is this dude who tweets out every day. He's like, we're in day 145 of the 15 days to slow the spread. Um, <laughs> um, how is it in, in Pennsylvania, uh, in, you know, in Pittsburgh? Because I know in California, we're very shut down, but is it different um, over there? Here, so there's indoor dining available. Um, museums are available. Um, all places are required masks. I think pretty much everywhere really is open now. Um, it's just a matter of someplace like movie theaters or socially distanced. Um, mm. I know my school has done a really good job as well with COVID. There's only 1.47% of our isolation housing is in use right now. Um, we're testing about 400 students asymptomatically every week. Um, I got test negative earlier this week, so um, I know they've done a great job. I'm seeing some schools though, like UNC, they're, I don't know what they're doing, what they're up to. I think at the beginning, UNC was doing uh, still two people per dorm. So I don't know exactly, but right. uh, just in general, I think people, you know, at the beginning, right in August, people were saying universities shouldn't reopen, kids are going to die or whatever, whatever. It's your choice to come back or not, you know, like it's kids are going to die. Like it wasn't anywhere near as bad as people were saying it was going to be, I feel. And I'm worried that with the Biden presidency, He's going to try to do something with federal mask mandates, possibly. He's going to come to Republican Senate or governors and try to force their hand in doing something they don't need to do. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we saw Governor Whitmer, you know, what she did in Michigan. Literally, the Michigan Supreme Court found that it was unconstitutional. She overstepped yeah. her authority. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And it, it shows, I mean, if, if you needed, you know, your daily reminder of like, of, uh, of media bias, you know, when, when, when Whitmer just gets fawned over for like being tyrannical and they're like, oh, what a queen. It's like, I don't, I don't think so, man. Um, yeah. Um, off the COVID talk back to just uh, election in general, yeah. I think, um, I think America desperately needs both political parties to kind of look in the mirror. Right. I think the, um, I think the Democratic Party is in the moment more uh, threatening to liberty and institutions than the Republican Party. Uh, I think if Trump wins a second term in the face of, um, you know, intense media bias, social media suppression, bully tactics from Dems, we'll talk, which I'll talk about in a second here, uh, and so on, I really hope they'll look in the mirror and understand that, like most Americans, um, have been pushed so hard that they're not willing to be empathetic to the party of top-down government and regulation. Um, as Joe Biden has talked about, they're not, you know, they're not willing to, to cave to the party that says eight-year-olds can have gender transition surgeries, that um, the, the party of creating healthcare plans that, um, you know, it, it, that are the first step in forcing Americans into socialized medicine and, and more. Um, the, you know, the public option thing sounds, you know, might sound fine to a moderate Democrat uh, before you understand that when you create a government monopoly in a market, it's, uh, that's the first step to full takeover um, and a lot more. And I think this is an important point about Biden uh, more so than than kind of the establishment Democratic Party. I think Biden is like a weak figure. He always has been. He's uh, largely unprincipled, and he always has been. Um, he's he, you know he's like a leaf in the wind, and he'll blow over wherever the pressure is coming from. And I think very obviously the pressure is coming from his far left. You know the born the Bernies, the Warrens, um, the AOCs, or 
you know, excuse me, the esteemed Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's, <laughs> um, uh, and then even his, you know, VP, uh, VP pick Kamala Harris, um, and I think he'll cave easily to far left pressure. Um, to talk a little bit about what I was saying just a second ago, kind of the the fear tactics that are designed to kind of like hold the country hostage in a way, um, you know, the only way to, you know, Don Lemon's talking about like, I had to get rid of people in my life for supporting Trump, you know, that the only way to be integrated into polite society is to vote Biden, that the only way to diffuse the high temperature culture is to vote Biden. Um, I think they're really gross, but they are easy to fall for and they're easy to be, you know, bullied into. Um, and I think we should be hesitant to do so. Um, when Biden runs his ads of, uh, have you seen these where it's like Sam Elliott will will narrate over them and it's just like gentle nature views. He's just like America, you know, and it's like, um, I could imagine them. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, preaching, you know, love for America, but then he turns around and he makes these absurd, frankly, immoral claims about America's institutions. You know, we should be able to look past his bull crap about like, I'm going to be an American president when he goes up on the debate stage and he says stuff like, you know, it's clear to me that uh, that there are different justice systems for white people and black people in this country. I, you know, um, I think, I, I, you know, th there are pieces that I've seen uh, run about how like conservatives should vote Trump out and vote Biden because without him, you know, there wouldn't be riots, you know, there wouldn't have to be this reaction. The left just, you know, will we'll be less radical without Trump, you know, everything will just calm down. I think it's a gross tactic. I think it's a lie um, that, you know, that, that suggests um, that if you don't want people to, you know, keep burning down and rioting and looting in, in major American cities, well, then you should just vote for the people who have stood by and watched it happen, um, which seems like a, which seems like a backwards argument. Um, when Biden dodges questions about his policy, have you ever like um, uh, scrolled through his Twitter feed and it's just all platitudes and there's nothing in there about like, it, it's literally about yeah. policies or anything. Yeah, there's no substance. It's just it's just like, you know, we need a president who's compassionate. That's cool. Like, what are you going to do on whatever? Um, you know, when he dodges questions about his policy proposals, take, for example, you know, the, the dozens of times he's been asked about court packing. And he just says, oh, I'm not going to answer that because then, like, my name will be in the newspapers. You do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or take, for example, like his tax plan that he's dodged and that the American Tax Association um, says will cost about 500,000 jobs within uh, a couple of years of its uh, implementation. And he just, you know, spills platitudes about like, I will not be a red or a blue president. Uh, I'll be an American, I'll be an American president. You know, whether you vote for me or not, I'll represent you. I think we can all look past that. You know, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we should like spit it back in his face and be like, no, like that's not even one that's not true. This is the same crap that like Obama said eight years ago or not eight years ago, that 12 years ago. Um, I was four, forgive me. Um, <laughs> um, this is the same stuff he was saying and it was not true. Um, so I think we should, you know, even if, even if Biden doesn't seem like a, like a threatening, like a threateningly radical guy, I think, you know, there's there's kind of like a, a shadowy figure just over his shoulder. Um, and I think it's like a future for the country that like will cram down the government into Americans' lives more than we thought um, was possible from, you know, from a supposed moderate, from a supposed, you know, strong moderate force in the, in the Democratic Party. Um, so 
I'm sorry, I just talked for a while there, but if you, uh, if you have some notes about, uh, about Biden. I especially like your point about how the left tries to get how it portrays people who don't agree with their ideas and why they should support it. I mean, you look at how the left treated Ice Cube for simply meeting with uh, Trump to talk about his platinum plan. Right. Lowell Wayne coming out, you know, saying he had a meeting, a productive meeting with Trump and that he listened to his policies. 50 Cent coming out, you know, saying Biden's tax plan, 62%, that's way too much, right? And it's like, you know, why don't you just let them think through who they want to be? You, you see them as black people before you see them as like rich people who are like successful. You know what I mean? It's like, it completely reduces people's identity to who they vote for. Right, and right. I think that, you know, with a Biden presidency, it's like, oh, you vote for Trump, clearly. You know, it's like whenever I see someone that says, Oh, if you vote for Trump, it is a vote against the LGBTQ community. Oh, you can't be voting for Trump if you have an LGBTQ friend. A lot. Yeah. The, yeah. Right. For for the for the LGBT um, community, I think I think people like portray it as differently, but I think he's like actually done quite a bit um, internationally, at least, and he hasn't done anything bad domestically. So I don't I don't really see the case there. I understand it. They're, they're yeah. It's like they're most outrageous. Like if he's like oh, um, he thinks that a civil union should only be between a man and a woman. That's a pretty basic conservative principle again. So it's like- Think that though? He like doesn't this? at all. If, if that's that's something that I've seen them say though. Yeah, okay, all right, no, fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I love how the only argument is just like, oh, well, Pence is religious. It's like, wow, got him there, you know, like- <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. What, what an own, man. Um, isn't the U.S. like 70% Christian or something? Like, I'm yeah. pretty sure something yeah. like that, yeah. Which is why, again, the Barrett critics, that mm -hmm. critic of Barrett made no sense. Like, oh, she's religious. She was. She goes to church. Right. Well, for her, good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, like, I mean, it, it all comes from just like, you know, coastal lefties, right, who like, who live in L.A. And the extent of religion is like someone whose like grandfather was Jewish and like once a year they like eat a bagel or something and they're like, I'm Jewish. Uh, but and, the, and that's all they know about religion. And so it, it's crazy to them, you know, when 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 Barrett is talking about like, I go to church, I have seven children, you know, I own a gun and they're like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> and then for and for, you know, the entire middle of the country, they're like, yeah, like it's pretty that's normal. Pretty <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah i i really i don't know man i i don't know i don't know what's what's gonna happen uh but it, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting that's for sure one point also is concerns early voting statistics right we're seeing that more early voters tended to be more democratic um i'm sorry democratic voting for democrats um, but actually, I've been seeing a recent articles about in the Washington Post about how the gap is increasingly tightening between these early voters and who they're voting for. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing that in battleground battleground states like Pennsylvania, it's actually more. It's actually 50 to 49 percent, I believe. That's Republicans versus Democrats, mm -hmm. and we're seeing more of them coming to the polls. And I think that you know one thing to keep in mind is also that. As we get closer to election day, obviously, right, some polls are going to be a lot more uncertain. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because 
some people are claiming that Trump supporters are so fanatic that they'll be coming out on election day rather than early voting. And I think while that is an important point and something that I think will definitely happen, I don't think it's on the scale as people portray it to be. Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing that because again, early voting is becoming more and more Republican now. But um, again, a lot of these voters have already made up their mind. No one is making up their mind at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just hoping that at least in these battleground states like Pennsylvania, we know that the results are almost close to what elections should be like um, once we find out in a few days. So Right, right. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, interesting, interesting patterns here. And certainly on your point of, uh, of, of the Republican uh, Democrat split in battleground states, I think the, the majority of people who show up to vote uh, in person, who to vote on election day, that sort of thing, are going to be mostly Republicans, I think. So if you're holding on to about like a 50-50, a 50-50 um, reporting uh, right now, in a battleground state, it's probably going to swing red the, the, the closer you get to election day. Um, there are a lot of interesting voting patterns this year. Um, the, uh, the Democrats uh, have lost a lot of their, uh, according to the New York Times, I'm just looking at this now, have lost a lot of their polling margin among, uh, among uh, non-white voters. Um, and I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a valuable thing that um, wasn't so much a thing um, before the, the last election, but certainly it's been a push that like, you know, most famously the, the sort of, uh, you know, black people don't have to be Democrats thing, you know, Latinos don't have to be Democrats thing. Um, I, I think it'll grow more in, in, uh, in more years. And I think that's. I think it's also why you see so many, uh, so many white, white, uh, white liberals trying to trying to cling to yeah. to what they have. Of like, did you see Chelsea Handler talking about Fifty Cent? And she was saying, uh, uh, she said, when Fifty was like, you know, let, let's, you know, I I, I want to endorse Trump because of my taxes. And Chelsea Handler goes on uh, Fallon and she says, you know, I had to remind him that he was a black person, and I was <laughs> like. Holy hell! Like, yeah, like you ain't black until you vote for Biden, kind of stuff. Yeah, like thank you, white lady, for your input here. You know, like thank you so much. Um, it really means a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I I think this is a question I've been thinking about. How how much uh, credibility do you give to the people who are like you know most important election of our lifetime? battle for Americans, battle for the battle for the soul of America, um, uh, you know, vote like your life depends on it. Like, how much how much do you put in uh, to that? I think those are more of a fringe group that get a lot of attention because of like social media, you know, they're more likely to post things like that. You know, those on social media are probably a lot more uh, politically in touch. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I don't think I think I, I think I would agree in saying that this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Mm. I think in the past 30 years, this has been probably the most important election, at least. Mm. Right, I, right. I think if there's one I could I could think that was more important. Um, maybe Bush two. I was but, yeah. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. I do you mean this, do you mean 2000 or do you mean 2000? Yeah, 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, but this is 
I think if this is, has to be like a close second or if not more important. Right. Uh, I'm more, I'm way more interested in seeing, not way more, but I'm more interested in seeing how the Republican party responds to whoever wins. Right. Uh, especially that the 2024 GOP nominee is going to be an incredibly tight race, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, so. I'm interested to see that. I'm interested to see where the party goes. Well, maybe interested and a little scared <laughs> to see how the party goes. But hey, that, that's what uh, Gen Z GOP is for, right? Yeah, we're there. Good one. Okay, uh, now for everybody's favorite segment, by everybody, I mean me, um, where we answer a couple of listener questions. Uh, we, got, we got some really good ones this week. Uh, the first one is, what do you think uh, is our Trump's greatest failures and accomplishments? Um, you want to take that first? <laughs> uh, you can go first. Okay. So I think uh, I think Trump's biggest accomplishments have been on um, hard foreign policy. I think a lot of people off the top of their head would say the economy. I try not to give the president too much uh, too much undeserved credit for uh, you know who, no matter who the president is for either a good economy or a bad economy. Um, and I think it's a good thing that the president is not like in sole control of it. Uh, and it shouldn't be viewed like that. Um, so I would say, and, and certainly recently, a lot of the uh, foreign policy advancements, uh, peace deals in the Middle East, you know, he moved the uh, United States embassy to Jerusalem, uh, of, of Israel to uh, Jerusalem. I think he's been, uh, you know, the, the more reasonably pro, pro-Israel the president is, the more I'm likely to uh, support him. Um, you know, he's made significant uh, peace deals in the last couple of uh, of months in the Middle East, in you know, in in a highly uh, in a highly tense region, uh, I think he's just you know been hit really hard on on some of his behavior and some of his rhetoric with with you know with some dictators and some leaders, um, you know, being overly soft in his wording on uh, you know on Kim Jong Un on on Vladimir Putin on that sort of thing, and I think all those claims are entirely valid because I think um, I think you know Ronald Reagan, for example, set set an excellent precedent when he, you know, declared that the Soviet Union was the evil empire, uh, but also had a functioning relationship with Gorbachev. Um, I think he set a good example. And I think Trump maybe in, um, maybe in outcome has, has, uh, has hit gold pretty well there, but maybe didn't have the same uh, presentation that Reagan did. As for his biggest failures, um, I think the way that he handled his public relations on, on COVID was his, was his greatest failure and will, and if he loses, that's the only thing to blame on his, uh, on his downfall. I think, you know, if, if the election were in, were on March 6th of this year, I think he would have won going away. Um, you know, maybe not a landslide, but I think he would have, I think he would have done very well. Um, and I don't happen to think that, anyone given the information that we knew at the time and and as we went forward would have been able to like prevent hardly anything that has happened on on covid but i think he uh publicly handled it very poorly uh in stuff he was saying in in how he was dealing with it and how reluctant he was to you know say uh promote masks for example even after uh you know we got information that you know these probably help um, so again, I think, I don't think, uh, this had a massive impact on what actually happened. I don't think if Biden were president say that, like, 
more Americans would would uh, would not or less Americans would have died necessarily. Um, but I think the the uh, you know back back to the optics we were talking about earlier. I think it was a huge huge miss on his part. Yeah, um, I was a little of Trump's foreign policy at first. Um, actually, I'm very skeptical of it still. Um, I think, honestly, his foreign policy is one of my weaknesses for me, for Trump. Um, I think that I, Trump's taken a more of an isolationist policy and stance in terms of foreign policy, uh, which I don't think should be as great as he's done. I know that public perception of that um, is as especially soured with like war in Afghanistan, um, more terror, obviously, all that. Um, but I would have liked to see better involvement rather than no involvement in a lot of in a lot of places, especially like in terms of developing relationships with like um, South America, developing relations with Africa. Um, I, th I think a recent important country that the, that Trump should be trying to foster relationship with is Poland. Um, very conservative. They just selected a very conservative political party. Um, they just put a extremely stringent rules on abortion. Um, that's one country to look at. Um, but I think in terms of foreign policy, for me, it's one of his weaknesses. In terms of his best accomplishments, um, I guess, I think one of his best accomplishments has been just, um, um, Trump is, I feel, is a president that when he says he's going to get something done, he does. I mean, I think one of the biggest examples of that, for example, is the border wall, right? Um, obviously, like said, Mexico was going to pay for it and all. That was just like bullshit. Like they were never going to pay for it, obviously. But I mean, right, there's much more construction happening. There's solidifying the border wall. Um, and whether or not you think it's a good or a bad thing, um, yes, follow through on that. Um, another thing has been cutting down a number of regulations, right? I'm reading that from for every regulation that he imposes, he erases 16. Um, right. Has right. conservative Republican president. I mean, obviously, that's like right. uh, an accomplishment, right? So um, yes, yeah. So I just just to point out, I feel like that this is a this is a big thing about Trump. How it's like I am e eternally put off by who he is as a person, but who he is as a as a president on policy is a like good conservative president you know like yeah. you know it, if if uh if the history books or whatever you know only focused on and you know if they made the presidents just faceless people nothing outside of whatever got done i think he would uh go down as like you know from a conservative perspective like a successful pretty solid president um but obviously that's not the case nor nor do i think should it be um i'm sorry but you know continue i just want to point that out Oh, absolutely. I think that a lot of, you know, at the beginning, I was skeptical how conservative Trump would be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a lot in part because I didn't know, um, I didn't really know much about Trump, you know, when he when he announced that he was running. I was like, oh, it's that New Yorker dude that did that was like on WWE. Um, <laughs> and I was like, who is this guy, right? All I know is like eccentric rich dude. Mm -hmm. uh, father was rich, you know, small loan of a million dollars guy. Um, but you know, so I was skeptical about how conservative he would be, but you know, after you know seeing his four years, I think that you know conservatives would would rate him highly in terms of recent presidents, at least. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I definitely agree there. Um, so in, in short, your biggest accomplishment from Trump is just that he is effective when he is determined to do something. Yeah. Um, like it. I mean, one of the reasons Republicans voted for Trump is because the main reason why is because, you know, they, they felt that previous Republicans were just too soft, right? They let Democrats step over them. Here comes this guy talking all this, saying we need to stop yeah. Democrats yeah. from letting us from just having their way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's bring back right I, i'm i'm you know on like left social media they'll be like okay has conservatism in the united states actually done anything for the country mm -hmm. what kind of what kind of take is that you know what i mean so you know there's yeah. this guy coming in saying we need to absolutely get a handle on this when i actually face up to them mm -hmm. uh, yeah here, here here's this guy that's not a politician for 40 years right you look at biden right politician 50 for yeah 1973 <laughs> yeah. what do you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, it, it's frustrating I, because mm -hmm. I feel like the left claims that they don't want these career politicians who've been there for 40 years haven't done much. But here they come and elect this guy who's been there for 40 years, you know, and like is going to be a pretty weak president, to be honest. So it, it is very strange because you have a couple of kind of distinct groups of the party, right? You have your sort of Bidens and then your, and then your leftists. Um, or your really hardcore leftists, and and both of them, I, it's so funny to me because you know one would choose like Biden, you know the dude's been in politics uh, almost three times as long as I've been alive, um, which which is crazy. Um, you didn't leave at yeah. some point. Yeah, um, and then and then like Bernie Sanders, who's like this eighty year old dude who's never done a damn thing in his life except like you know suckle off the taxpayer. Um, but that's, you know, so it, it's, it is interesting how neither of them can, uh, I guess the only argument for Bernie is that he's not establishment, but, uh, regardless, um, not to get too far off tangent, our, our third, um, our third question is, uh, if you can add one amendment to the constitution, what would it be? If I could add an amendment to the constitution, it would be explicitly defining the role of the president. Um, hmm. just. I guess in more details, um, I, f I feel like there's a lot of like um, a lot of gridlock or a lot of uncertainty about what a president's role actually is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the specific court case in which, but I remember there was a justice um, an opinion and it was pretty much about, I think it might have been, was it Truman? It was someone else did something as president and the court opinion decided that, look, we actually don't know like what presidents do. We're just like, yeah, you're there to pretty much um, enforce the rules of of Congress. Um, I would definitely specifically define the roles in terms of foreign policy, in terms of what, when they can actually call a war, uh, go to war, when they are allowed to pass an executive order. I'd probably define what an executive order um, I like is. that. I like that, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. I was thinking a little bit and I, I, I didn't get as creative as you. Uh, so I was just, I, I wanted the, so uh, my favorite amendment is the 14th amendment, mm -hmm. but I want it to be more specific because it has been entirely bastardized in a Yo, couple yeah. of ways. Um, yeah. So I, I guess it's not technically adding uh, an amendment, but I think uh, the, the, it should be made a lot more specific, 
so that crap like Roe v. Wade can't happen, where people <laughs> completely read, like, right? Like, the, you know, where, where people read the, the quote-unquote right of privacy into, uh, into full-term abortion, um, into an amendment that has nothing to do with that. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's just, maybe that's just me being salty, uh, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do, I think that would be my, uh, my thing. Um, let's see, I think another interesting question, this wasn't one, but just feeding off of that, what amendment would you remove? Oh, uh, what amendment would I remove? Um, I don't know. You're gonna have to give me a second on this because I, uh, I can. I, I can give you some okay. time here. So all all of my uh, all of my very hardcore libertarian friends are gonna be disappointed when I don't say the uh, the sixteenth. But uh, <laughs> but um, I think from from what I know, um, I shouldn't have asked this question because I'm I'm unprepared to. But uh, uh, I think the twelfth is kind of a ticking time bomb in a way. Um, so. I can't necessarily talk super long about it because I don't. Uh, I'm probably not as informed as I should be, mm-hmm. but I I do. From what I know, it it seems it seems a little iffy, and at least uh, a reform on it, um, if not you know getting rid of it, would be uh, should work. Or you could just get rid of the. I mean, get get rid of the stuff that like doesn't apply anymore. Just get yeah. get rid of the third. Like, the hell does the third mean to anyone? You know. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. You got anything off the top of your head? Yeah, I guess if I had to remove one, it would be the 17th. Um, mm. Electing senators by popular vote. I think that I really like the fact that, especially in larger states, right, you have your um, you have your representative, right? You not only have that, but you have your state representatives, right? You, only, you already have most states, I believe, for two have um, bicameral legislatures. So... You know, you have not only your state legislators, but you have your representative to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really like if the federal, if the Senate um, was picked by the state legislatures, I think that would make more sense. I think especially the fact there's only two senators, um, it, it would, I feel like it would give them, it, it would give them a greater check on power and it would give more power to the House of Representatives, I feel, mm-hmm. and it would make it it will make the senators more um, linked to the to what's actually good for the state rather than what the popular feeling is towards what's actually good for the state's economy or the state's culture society. Right. Um, so I just think if you know if they were like directly elected by the state legislators, it would be it would be better for everyone. I like it. I like it. Um, um. Yeah, that's all I can really think of. Maybe the maybe my uh, my paleo con friends would uh, would say the nineteenth, but uh, that's not that's not me. <laughs> thanks everybody for tuning into this week's episode, and thanks so much to Sam for giving us his time and his insight. Uh, he's on the road to 100 followers, so uh, everybody follow him at uh, at Blackish Whitish uh, yeah. on Twitter. Uh, spelled how it sounds. Uh, happy belated Halloween to everyone. Happy election week, I suppose, if that's happy for you. And, uh, and stay safe out there. Uh, bye for now.